Consumers Podcast for the week of May 21st. My name is Justin D. Hurd. My name is Nathan Steinman. Skyler Deal. And we're on episode 49, one step away from the big 5-0. finally made it. I feel so honored to be here. <laughs> it only took two and a half years to get here. <coughs> Something like that. We're, we're, yeah. <laughs> We've had a lot of interruptions over the years. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, some big stuff has happened. One one of us has had a baby. Uh, one of us has gotten divorced. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, it's not the same person. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh goodness! It's been a uh, quite a quite a two and a half year journey. You know, we uh, I was too uh, ambitious the last time we recorded. I was like, we're back. <laughs> and then life happened. <laughs> I went to Portland. That was awesome. Nice. I I worked. <laughs> I've done a lot of that too. Changed uh, five hundred diapers. I bet right now. <laughs> maybe, probably probably maybe since the last time yeah. you've been on the podcast. That's just a rough <laughs> number there. You're probably up to really like two or three thousand. Oh my goodness. I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason why I'm like. No babies ever again. I'm like, <laughs> as soon as my daughter got personality at two years old, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, not, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm full up. I'm that, full that, up. That's a milestone for you. I'm still changing diapers. My son's four years old, and I'm he goes to the bathroom like a champ, but whenever it's nighttime, it's like, okay, I'll throw a diaper on you. Just, you know. It so happens. Yeah. I was, I was a late bedwetter, so I, I totally get it. It happens. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> everybody wanted to know that on the podcast. Yeah, I know. Congratulations. <laughs> our, our, our few <laughs> listeners are like, fuck this. We're talking about bedwetting now. So welcome to the Bedwetters Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Nathan, right. what have you been consuming? Well, uh, I recently watched a film called Run, Low, The Run. Rewatched, really. But it had been... 17 years since I'd seen the movie. It's uh, Tom Tickver, the guy who did Perfume. Honestly, I've never watched Run, Little Run. I had it on Blu-ray for years and then finally just sold it because I'd never taken it out of the shrink wrap. It was just like, I, I honestly have no interest in watching this movie. It's it's actually a really good movie. Yeah, it's, it's really good. The it, If you're not familiar with it, the concept is is that it's a... it's As per usual, it's a... A three-act structure, but the three acts are the exact same premise, the same story, but different outcomes. Same basic story, same basic premise, but each time it's a completely different outcome, depending on how things happen. And it's only 81 minutes, super sharp, to the point, but like not in a way that's like, Man, you didn't even really need to make this 81 minutes kind of thing. It doesn't feel long. It's very kinetic. It's very... But the premise that you get in the first couple minutes is her boyfriend has left the bag of money that he's supposed to give to the crime boss. And if he doesn't have 100,000 Deutschmarks by noon, and this is, then he's dead. And it's 1140. She has 20 minutes to find 100,000 Deutschmarks. And so each time it plays out, you see the fallout from what she, from what choices she makes. You get the fallout from that. The interesting thing is, is the style of the film also incorporates, she'll run into a person 
or pass by a person or or run in front of a car and you will get the flash frames of that person of how their life plays out yeah for the rest of sometimes several years you know clearly several years but it's all quick flash like it's uh instead of using freeze frames to hold time he uses freeze frames to speed up time okay so the whole thing is all about it's really a whole ex kind of exegesis on time and uh the movie came out in 1998 and uh you know that was the first movie i showed my future wife on our first movie night at her place wow i showed her that in <coughs> leon the professional what oh in district b13 i just was on a, like a foreign movie kick <laughs> apparently i'll tell you one thing the part that always stood out to me about run Lolo run is i just freaking love that soundtrack and i was a big electronic guy way back then and still am and everyone talks about that soundtrack anyway yeah it's so energetic yes it just keeps that pace going throughout the whole thing. It just does, it never stops. I'm talking and about like the, a perfect movie where like drum and bass is important. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a whole lot of movies where you're like, man, I'm really glad that soundtrack was drum and bass. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- one of the other really interesting elements is it also uses animation. Okay. Oh yeah. It, yeah. it uses. Um, it's been a while for me. Ideas <laughs> of multiple takes where you get the same phrase said a um, bunch of different ways and they're all cut together rapid fire so you get this like almost sound poem of like reactions and like and then there's this one moment where she's trying to think of the and this is all the very beginning first first 10 minutes is like so hyperkinetic and so like is uh it's probably the most satoshi cone a film has ever been in the fact that like she's trying to think of who uh she's uh going to like get the hundred thousand deutschmarks and like you see flash frames of the people and she, you hear just like a whisper of their name uh, their name or their, their relation and it slowly just starts speeding up speeding up speeding up speeding up speeding up until you have like until it seems like you can't recognize who it is or what it is or what they're saying but uh, or who that what their relation is and then names start repeating until she finally settles on who she's gonna go and go and ask for the money Okay, but it's uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, it reminded me that I was like, man, I really need to dive down Tom Tickford's catalog because I mean, I've seen Cloud Atlas, I've seen Perfume, and I've seen this, and all of them I've liked um, for different reasons. But Perfume is just such a beautifully told, debaucherous story of and batshit insane. And batshit insane. And this one is Super not so awesome. batshit insane, but just like <clears throat> the storytelling is so fascinating. Like, and there's editing in it. You know how some of the elements in Edgar Wright where he does the musical editing, mm. some of that is kind of progenited in this movie because there's specific cuts that are cut directly to the soundtrack in the kind of the same way that the Edgar Wright does. Um, the other thing is, is, is it came out the year before the Matrix. Uh, which is kind of interesting because they would leave on Cloud Atlas. It's the Wachowskis and Tom Tickfer. Right. Um, but their shots totally influence the style of this movie directly influenced the style of the matrix, the kinetic, the energy, the soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, there's a, sp- 
there's a 360 degree shot around a telephone. It reminds as me it's of falling, everything about as it's falling movie. through the air. Yeah. And ev- and I think all three of the times before the story starts, the phone lands, and that's where. That's where every time it successively restarts, it starts with the phone slamming down again. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, told, you can tell the Wachowskis had watched this movie before they shot. What was uh, the actress? Uh, her name is Franca Potente. Was she in Born Identity? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. She <coughs> She's uh, married to the director of Born Identity. Or that was like her boyfriend, right? That's I why she was in some n- of those movies. No idea. Okay. Uh, Paul Greengrass or Green, Well, Paul Greengrass directed the... He didn't direct the first one. Oh, okay, okay. There's... Paul Greengrass directed two, three, oh. and uh, the most recent one. That was... That was the only two movies I can think about her being in, but mm. she, she... I remember... Most of the movies she's in her in German, so that's yeah, probably... Right. <laughs> probably right. not a l- there's not a lot of German cinema that makes it over here. <laughs> yeah, my... With... Uh, Tom, his movies, you know, obviously Perfume is one of my favorite movies, and I, you know, I evangelize that all the time, but Cloud Atlas, for me, that got completely ruined because I read the book beforehand, which is, you know, a rookie mistake, but at the same point, the the book is so much more interesting because it uses a uh, nested dolls sort of narrative. Yeah, Whereas the movie's just like, oh, yeah, we're going to completely change relationships and we're going to show mean, everything. That's the nature of adaptation. I know. It, it It's small things, though, that you just go, this could have been the exact same, but for some reason you changed this one small line that completely just r- changes everything about this, you know, adaptation. It's the nature of adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I watch plenty of the Dom. I know. But I'm also just saying it's the nature of adapting something is is uh, and we'll talk more about that here in a little bit because one of my other things is directly about uh, something that's been adapted so. there you go <laughs> so uh skyler uh what have you been consuming like? um y'all know what record store day is yes okay this was the 10th year they've done it the first year i went i think was in 2009 right after college i heard about it and i went and it was a lot of fun and back then, you know, people lined up outside. I went to Guest Room Records in Norman. People were lined up in the morning to get whatever, you know, something, some rare limited release. <coughs> the thing about it, though, back then, and I don't think it's, I don't think it was as bad as a problem as it is now, but record collecting was in a up upswing because of Record Store Day. It actually yeah. kind of helped rejuvenate it. The bad thing about that, and this always happens when something good happens, something bad happens, is scalpers, those flippers, you know, yeah. resellers. On well, because, I mean, they're limited pressings. So. And the thing is... So you get people who literally go in, buy every copy of that album so that they can flip it on eBay. And the, the thing about it, too, is, you know, you get a limited, say, at-the-drive-in release relationship in command like a year or two ago colored vinyl like 2500 copies i guess worldwide or whatever and people are flipping that on ebay for almost a hundred dollars or 75 80 dollars you know and just something that was 30 bucks yeah and the thing is um it's not like you can't go get that album on regular black vinyl it was just something cool for people to collect if they wanted it but in a lot of those 
crazy colored variants and stuff don't sound as good as like a normal crisp black vinyl. Well, they're not always <coughs> 180 gram. Or yeah, yeah, and um, flimsy, real kind of cheap. The warping or the they just weren't pressed right. So it, it's just kind of like you know what's the point? And this year I <coughs> honestly wanted to go because a couple of reasons. Uh, the Sundays, their album. Um, their second album was re was put out on vinyl actually for the first time, and uh, Peter Tosh his album Legalize It was re released, and uh, the album sleeve was supposed to smell like pot, which I thought <laughs> would be <Wow>. really funny. <coughs> <coughs> of course. Yeah, and then I wanted to go because you know the record store tried to sell discounts on stuff, so I thought I'd pick up some old stuff, and I didn't go because I had no money. <laughs> well, I mean that's <coughs> yeah because it's expensive to collect records. It is. I mean, that's it started out cheap. Yes. And well, then that that's part of the reason I liked running vintage stock was we participated in record store day. We'd get everything set up, but you had very strict rules. Like if somebody called asking for something, you could not hold anything until noon after you'd been open for four hours. <coughs> and you had to make sure one copy per person, per group. You know, da 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 da. I went da, to da, the, nor the Edmond location, vintage stock, and I'm like, so y'all getting ready? No, we're not doing it this year because we were bought out and now we yeah. are uh, not independent anymore. No, so we can't per we don't participate in it. Yeah, they Why, they ooh. they did get bought out and uh new company somebody owns them. That's honestly not a them saying they're not independent anymore. That doesn't mean anything, but even at that time we didn't get a lot of return on investment for Record Store Day. The one thing I thought was awesome one year it was awesome to look at it as somebody who doesn't collect vinyl but my favorite like just cons cons completely stupid thing that they did was uh guardians of the galaxy volume one was released on cassettes yes that's, that's fucking hilarious and, yeah. on record store day right <laughs> right no, cassettes are yeah i know weird research well and the, yeah, well, because they, it's, they it's it's the the next thing that's like <sighs> you can still go to the thrift store and find find them for 25 well, cents or a um, dollar they'll have um bands release cause singles yeah which is just well, like okay and uh, brother gruesome the band from around here they've uh i mean they've released like four albums on cassette yeah but the the other thing i've heard about cassettes and the reason why they're having a comeback is because they are degradable media yeah so you know you can only there's a there's a only so many times you can watch it or listen well, to it yeah and yeah, I guess that's right. Well, you it's know. the same thing. Well, I had OK Computer. It's, a, it's, a, and it's the same set. thing with Star Wars. <coughs> I mean, I mean, the reason why those videotapes that I thankfully uh, had a friend working at half price, so I have two sets of the trilogy, the original trilogy, and the original edits <laughs> that I got for really cheap because someone <laughs> didn't realize they could sell them on eBay probably for a hundred bucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> no matter their quality. <laughs> Well, here's the, the thing about record collecting is, uh, okay, real briefly, I got into it in 2008 simply because I pre-ordered the deluxe box set of In Rainbows. And it came with? The bonus CD. I only bought it because I wanted the bonus CD with all the B-sides, but it was like a double vinyl pressed on 45. And uh, I was like, well, I, I guess I'll get a record player, and my grandmother gave me hers and jc penny one <coughs> and i just said well okay i'll go and just collect all my favorite albums on vinyl just that that's that always it. where it starts like the, well, the top 10 or something you know and all everything i'll, I'll get my favorites yeah and then 
some butthead last year or two stole my iPod out of my car, which I had built up over 80,000 songs on it during college, so I can't listen to anything anymore because I'm broke and don't have a computer. So, like, dang it, I'm just going to go ahead and collect all my good albums on vinyl, uh, my favorite albums. So <coughs> that's the downward spiral. I went into Guest Room Records on a Friday evening, and it was absolutely packed with people, young and old. Yeah. I was I mean, like, what is going on? Vinyl's back, dude. <laughs> Uh, what was it last year? Vinyl, uh, the beginning of this year, vinyl completely outpaced digital. Um, as far as as far as record sales, Jack White's Blunderbuss album or whatever was like the highest selling vinyl album. Uh, well, and also the other thing is, is there's a physicality to it that is missing from a lot of and I love from that. YouTube and digital media. I like holding know. it, and you know, when you take the album out and put it on, play it, it's a chore. You got to flip it. But it makes the music kind of feel a little bit more personal in a way. Well, you, you have know. a connection to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you have to, you have to <coughs> put the needle on. You have to. There's something. There's more to it than just going flick, flick, yeah. play, and you can find anything you want at any time. You know. Yeah. So the last thing to kind of end on that is I read an article on the Vinyl Factory website or whatever. They have a really good news section, and there was uh, an article mentioning the. I think it was in the German. I think there were Germans who are the ones who actually kind of invented the MP3 in like the 80s, pre-internet stuff, I guess, or one internet. It was, was probably like an MP1. Yeah, really. something like that. They said the MP3 is dead. They declared well, it dead. The, the creators of the MP3 declared it dead. Well, the MP4 has pretty much replaced yeah. it, you know. And they said, you know, yeah, your ways of media is pretty much streaming, I guess, and CDs are kind of going out. I mean, you got disc rod anyway, but it, it's just like retro game collecting. It's just huge, and you feel kind of weird getting into it at that time because you're like, man, everyone else is doing it, and it's so expensive, but in the end, everybody's going to end up selling all their collections back because <laughs> they got into it for the wrong reasons, I guess. Well, I uh, but the thing is, is uh, now this is the a buddy of mine was asking if I wanted anything from Record Store Day because we were going to be in Portland when it happened, and there was no way I was going to Record Store Day in Portland. No. <laughs> there was no way that Can was happening. There's also <laughs> no way I was getting vinyl back from on a plane. There was, yeah, no. There's a bomb in that record sleeve. Yeah. No, I was just like, I'm just not going to deal with things getting destroyed or yeah. whatnot because I can't handle a, uh, someone with a bag, you know. I mean, this year's list of Record Store Day releases kind of stunk, and all the ones that I really wanted were released in the UK. The, the only one that I really wanted was uh, Lilo Schriffen, the guy who wrote the Mission Impossible, uh, original Mission Impossible yeah. soundtrack. Uh, he had a collection that had never been released on vinyl. Cool. See, it was a vinyl only. They do cool stuff like that. It's totally they've, worth they've it. They've done like a movie, like all of his movie themes, but this uh -huh. was like one he picked all his favorites of. Yeah. And it's called Lil Schiffen Goes to the Movies or something. When they do something like that, that's cool. When they release a, when they release special limited edition picture discs of the dude from Disturbed covering whatever that one song was. I don't know. That that's stupid. You know, I wanted they had the Blade Runner soundtrack this year on vinyl, which is a it re release. Was on color vinyl, but it right? was a picture disc and those sound terrible and I don't really care about hanging it on my wall. Yeah. Anyway, Justin, what have you been consuming? 
Um, kind of a weird departure from my normal fare. I watched uh, the Street Fighter Assassin's Fist Blu-ray. Okay, is this an animated or live action? Live action. Okay. Um, I didn't even know they made another live action. Well, one. technically, this was a... Uh, this was like a Japanese only? Or? No, it was a Makinima YouTube channel, um, like miniseries with 12 episodes. Weird. Um, it's a British live action web series that um, basically it's... Um, how do I put this? It focuses just on Ryu and Ken's um, time at the dojo under their master. Um, I'm probably going to butcher his name. Um, Galkin. Um, I'm so like it's been too long. Calgon. <laughs> I have no idea. Calgon. <laughs> it's G G O U K E N. So Golkin maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't kept up with Street Fighter in a long time. Um, but it's base. It was developed by um, Joey Ansa, who's best known for the Born Ultimatum. He's a martial artist, and Christian Howard. Um, so yeah, like a stunt, another st- stunt martial arts performer, kind of. Uh, he was actually in the 20 f- 2005 indie film Lovestruck. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then he played Ken in. Um, in this 2014 thing, he's kind of in a handful of different things. He was in the Street Fighter Legacy short. But the thing is, is like, this is a super faithful adaptation. Like, <clears throat> it makes sense now that I know it was a Mechanima short film sort of thing. But it's literally about the two of them um, training and then learning, oh, hey, like, it's them training before they know how to do the Hadouken or anything like that. And so then it's learning how to do those things. Right. But also like Ken finding the journals from um the guy who the guy who would become Akuma about the dark Hado and um Ken trying to take the um shortcut of using this journal and the dark Hado and to be able to beat Ryu. Because kind of the whole thing is that Ryu, throughout all of Street Fighter, is never really competing with anybody. He's more competing with himself. Whereas Ken is always competing against everybody else. And so it's just this super personal journey between these two characters. Medium budget, if you would even, low to medium budget. Kind of like that Nightwing fan film thing. I honestly haven't seen that. I've only seen about half of it. Um, I'd say it's probably along the lines of um, oh there's the two there's two different ones there's um, like there's the death battles which are the animated ones where they like yeah. read everything and then there's the other series where it's still battles but what they do is they do um, it's by um, Bat in the Sun or something like that where they inter- they ask people they do take polls at cons or people in their comic shop, and whoever wins the poll wins the battle. And then they have somebody do a live-action version of it. And that's kind of how this felt, is it's the two of them learning, them kind of finding about the Hado, them, like, Ryu being better at it, but he's also super susceptible to the dark Hado. And it ends just as, a co- like, the boys are said, okay, cool, your training's done, basically, GTFO, 
and then Akuma comes to kill the master. Mm-hmm. So it's done really well. As I said, just like this low to medium budget. Actually, I'd probably say low budget in a single location character study of these that was done. Um, it's kind of like it's like the Power Rangers short that Joseph Kahn did. Okay. Or, um, but is this legal as opposed to illegal? It got released on Blu-ray. So, so it, they must have gotten approval. Yeah, they ended up getting approval for the release of it. Um, IGN put it 7.5 and said it's better than any of the live-action adaptations that they came up with. So that, uh, that checks out. Yes, yeah. I mean. If a, fa- if a fan, it's kind of, uh, the same thing with like the Mortal Kombat short that they made with. Um, trying to think of who it was. I don't know if I've seen this. Oh, they made a seven, like David Fincher seven style version of a Mortal Kombat short film. Okay. Where they tried to, um, Jerry Ryan showed up as Sonya Blade. Um, I'm trying. Uh, Michael Jai White showed up as Jax. <laughs> And um, they, like, explained Reptile as a Harlequin baby that survived. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember who the other one. Baraka was this, like, black drug dealer that had installed all these um, body mods into him, you know, into his skin. But just made it like Rebirth. This, Mortal right. Kombat Rebirth. Yeah, it was just this weird short film that appeared out of nowhere and then the guy got the job to do Mortal Kombat Legacy, which was a toned-down version of that. So, you know, it's one of these things, like, none of these are actually licensed things, but it's just fan-made, in love with the property. Let's see what we can do. Some of them get shot down, and then other ones... Someone knows how to do special effects in our group, so we're going to use them to... Well, you know, Capcom allowed those uh, fan... So a couple of Mega Man fan projects to come... Okay. Like they did that Mega Man Street Fighter. It's a Mega Man game, 8-bit, but it has Street Fighter characters in it that you can play as. And Interesting. It, it's on PC, and Capcom's like, yeah, sure, we'll let you put that out. You know, right. we'll put Capcom on there. Because it's a, a fan it's made limited, it. It's limited to yeah. a, a certain media. And that's kind of rare when that happens. You know, Nintendo will never let that happen. Well, it reminds me of uh, oh, um, Dragon Ball Z Burst. Uh, no, it was... Um, Bid for Power or something like that, which was a fan mod that um, was built on like the Quake 3 engine that they actually made it. So like, hey, if two people do power-based ac- attacks, like Goku does a Kamehameha and uh, Vegeta does Galaga Gun or whatever, and they meet, you actually have that kind of where it... The energy l- transfer. The, yeah, where they link up and then they're fighting between that. And it was in a 3D environment, full like running around, whatever, and right before it was released they um got a cease and desist order from namco bandai and they're like okay cool and they just created a basically created a whole bunch of new models made it just this third party thing but it was still but roughly the same thing they released that and then somebody leaked the dragon ball z models for it so suddenly everybody could just patch it and put in the dragon z the original dragon ball z models someone Leaked it like right. someone leaked the Deadpool test footage. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like, I think it was bit like Power Ryan, was the name you know, of it. Ryan Reynolds uh, uh, leaked the <laughs> footage to to make sure that 
like look look at all this fan support look how many sh- look how many digital impressions this did <laughs> yeah so. I, I still think that whole thing was the fox move. oh i don't think it was you don't really? i really think it was ryan reynolds going hey if i get a social media campaign out of this you have to back this movie like if i get this many impressions because this thing is that thing got shared it got shared every time it got taken down it got put back up Every time we got taken down, we got put back up. Hmm. That doesn't happen. Because think about the Marvel Guardians of the Galaxy trailer that was played at San Diego Comic-Con. Got put up once and never seen again. Yeah, I know. The, the Streisand effect was pretty huge for this Deadpool thing. I mean, I remember it came out and actually just looked it up on YouTube and got to see it. Yeah, but like, I mean, like it got put up over. and oh, I'm pre- What I'm pretty sure is Ryan Reynolds just kept putting it up <laughs> over and because it wasn't going away in quality it was staying the same level of quality mm-hmm. so i think he was just reposting it to all these different like more and more illegal sites so that it was <laughs> like because it was just every time it would go viral every time we get reposted it would go viral well, you know, like leaked footage and stuff ends up on porn sites now too. Yeah, leaked video game or movies. Well, because because it's a harder thing for those <laughs> to get taken down. No, my my favorite <laughs> recent like um, literally foot- pa- pun intended foot- <laughs> footage being put up on a porn site <laughs> was um, I think it was the inauguration of Donald Trump, and it says watch um watch one white man fuck the entire nation at once. <laughs> Oh, that was on a adult porn, site. Yeah, on a porn site. That was the that was the name of the, the wow video. Um, uh, 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 speaking of of uh, political things about Trump, this is just a quick thing. Uh, a friend of mine, Josh Gaines, his press is putting out an anthology called "Not My President." Uh, it's only fifteen dollars to buy the anthology on Kick to support the Kickstarter. You can also just support it with like a two dollar donation or something. Uh, but they're already halfway. Molly Crabapple is doing the cover. Amanda Palmer has a submission. David Mack has a submission. There's a bunch of state and U.S. P- poet laureates who have all submitted to it. So it's like a le- it's going to be a pretty legit anthology. Uh, Not it is my president. Yeah, it's called Not My President. It's ac- it was one of the featured Kickstarter things. I'll probably throw up the link on my Twitter again. I try and repost it every once in a while. You know, I remember uh, when Bush was during his second term, a lot of punk bands all had T-shirts that said "Not My President." Yeah, and his yeah. Face on just a Ukraine thing. Uh, last thing about the Street Fighter thing oh. is that if you guys on the Blu-ray, just to let you know how in depth this thing is, it is uh, 145 minutes. Wow! So it is almost two and a half hours long. Of this mini but Well, no, it's not on the Blu-ray. It's, it's just cut as a seamless movie? Yeah, if you watch it on DVD or Blu-ray, it is a seamless movie that it is just them in there. And like The one thing I can say that's notable that I haven't really seen anywhere else is that um, it shows Ken and Ryu as like kids and Ken being dropped. I, I, mean, I don't even know if I'd say kids, maybe teenagers, but dropped off. Ken being dropped off by his father saying, like, hey, this kid needs discipline, and then his dad coming back and trying to bring take Ken out of it, and Ken saying no, and his father sticking around to give them boxing lessons. Wow. And then, like, having this little, like, 
kind of Apollo or a, a Creed or Rocky montage of them training with Ken's father before Ken's father leaves. And it's just like, okay, this is cool. So um, if you watch the videos on YouTube, they're, um, they're 12 minutes each. There's 12 episodes. Um, if you watch, they did a t they <laughs> actually put it out as a TV series. They were 22 minute episodes in those, but um, yeah, you can buy the DVD or Blu-ray now, and it's as I said, 145 minutes. So wow. it, it's pretty substantial for a, just a little online series. Yeah, and it, well, and being one of those that it's like, okay, cool, this is going to be about Ken and Ryu and them training. Cool. Well, that that's that's going to be like an hour and a half long. Oh shit. Okay, this is longer than most theatrical run movies. And this like, is just the training. Yeah, this, this is. It, it sounds almost like the. I, I hate to use the comparison, but the the train the training you wanted from the Yoda part of <laughs> Empire Strikes Back in a way, the long game of like him actually learning how to be a Jedi, and what we might get in the Last Jedi. Yeah. So yeah, mm -hmm. which I mean, I. I Speaking of trailers, uh, you should mention that one if you had don't already have something you want to talk about. Oh, I have a trailer in mind, but not Star Wars. Okay. Okay, so Nathan, what have you been consuming? So I uh, I read No Country for Old Men. Okay. Oh, nice. Uh, I had re started rewatching the movie, and I was like, God damn it, I need to read this. Um, so speaking of adaptations, so have you ever like watched a movie where you were like, this just makes the book sleeker. Like it doesn't. There's Harry no. Potter. There's no dense changes. There's no big character mm -hmm. arc shifts. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, it really just trims the fat of the book. Now the fat of the book is good shit, oh, but oh, oh. for like a really sleek, like, movie that makes complete sense, there's no added. There's nothing added to it really. There's no. It just makes it more a little bit more condensed and just makes it streamlined a little bit. Let me let me correct Harry Potter. No, 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 no. I should say high fidelity. Okay. I haven't uh, read that the book. Was the one of the first things I ever said on the podcast is like favorite adaptations. I think that just gets the good parts of the book that you need to the Ninth Gate. I just had oh, a whole yeah. dubious consumption uh, episode about yeah. that on my YouTube channel about how hey this completely cuts out all the shit that made the book falter the movie fixes and so this is one of those books where the book is incredible actually what's funny is most of the lines that you think are coen brothers dialogue are in the fucking book nice. where'd you get that the get in place <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you yeah. know just like you know, just there's so many lines of dialogue that are just straight out of the book. This whole scene at the gas station where he intimidates the guy thinking, yeah. should I come back later? Why, why would you come back later? We're closed. <laughs> should I come back later? <laughs> even even the squeezing of the little like foil that the, that the nuts were in that he's eating and le letting and letting it like spring out. That's in the fucking book. It's 100% in the book. Some of the dialogue's a little displaced, but it's... Is there more... Um, I haven't read the book. 
I want to know if there's more parts. Y- y- the movie, when it ends with Tommy Lee Jones, I guess he's talking with his father, right? Is there more of that in the book? Because that was always interesting, but it's so near the end that it just kind of... So you know how the movie starts with a monologue? Yeah. yeah. There are 13 sections to the book, I think. 12 sections to the uh-huh. book. Each section opens with a monologue from that character. Yeah. Each one. And it's a monologue. It's a monologue addressed to the audience. Like, it is not in the narrative at all. Like, it is actually completely out of the narrative every time. It's just... And what we get at the beginning of the movie is a a condensing of several of the different monologues all together. All into one. I love that movie so much. It's probably... It's hard to pick. Is that or Raising Arizona is my favorite? Cohen Brothers movie. Uh, I don't know, man. Fargo. Oh, oh God, I forgot about Fargo. What the heck? How can you forget about Fargo, I, man? I don't know. Forgive me for saying <laughs> that. Forgive me for saying that. How can you forget about the Big Lebowski? Uh, Blood Simple. Um, how you... Uh, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? No, okay, my favorite uh, is still Raising Arizona. <laughs> okay. All right. But I love the ending to No Country for Old Men. Uh, it just... Does it end like that? It, to, it it, there's it. some more. More. There, not with Anton Shigura, but with the sheriff. Uh-huh. There's I like some the more sheriff. moments with the sheriff. I like that. Uh, the scene with his... It's not his dad. I think it's his uncle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. his dad's dead. Yeah. His dad was the sheriff before him. And the uncle's like when I was... And the uncle was there. the guy who got shot and yeah. was crippled. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It also revealed... Now, the moment that's not in the movie... And I'm going to spoil this for everyone because... What the fuck? I'm an asshole. <laughs> but the moment in that dialogue that is not in the movie is that he was a coward in the war in Vietnam. But he wasn't really a coward. What happens is his team got pinned in at a hill. They got pinned in. He radioed for an attack and but before the attack came a bomb an explosion happens in the hut that they were all pinned around or in and instead of staying he runs as soon as night comes now most likely all of his friends are dead all of his people in his company are dead most likely <laughs> yeah Highly likely, if not, yes, they were already dead. And if they weren't dead, they were going to get killed in the morning when when they came in. Uh, But you get the sense of, like, the shame that he feels from that moment has affected his entire life. Mm -hmm. So even when he is trying to help Llewellyn, it's reminding him of his failures. Because it's another vet. It's another person that survived the war, and he can't help him in the way that he wants to because he's trapped by because mm. he's a sheriff he, he yeah. has to be a lawman because it's the lawman in the 20th century yeah. it's not the lawman in the old westerns who could go out and be the agent of murder you know <laughs> for the for the town you know yeah and i will say the violence in the book is way more brutal mm. So the the character that Woody Harrelson plays, the other hitman, yeah, when he kills him, it describes his brains being on the wall, but 
It also describes the memories that he is now forgetting because he is dead. Like it is a that's pretty real powerful. Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy. uh, This is the first Cormac McCarthy I've actually read. Mm -hmm. I will be reading lots of Cormac McCarthy in the future. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. Uh, I think it was The Road. It was either The Road or the All the Pretty Horses. One of those two he won the Pulitzer Prize for. Could have been both. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he only won one. Dude's like a freaking hermit kind of solid, very solitude man. He, he doesn't know? like to hang out with writers. He hangs out with scientists. He hasn't written a novel in like ten years, basically. Not not was, exactly ten. years. I think years. he was on Oprah. <laughs> yeah, he he notoriously did not do Oprah for being a best-selling author. He did was one of the few, and then like the last book I think he wrote, he finally did Oprah. But he hasn't done a novel since. He's done some nonfiction writing, and he's edits science magazines, <laughs> like a science magazine he edits. Interesting. But um, you've have you seen No Country, Justin? Oh yeah, I absolutely love that movie. It's it's one of those that initially is kind of hard, and obviously the ending with the speech and it just cutting off, you go. <sighs> but oh, I, remember I love that ending. No, no. Well, the thing is for me is that the more you watch the movie. Once yeah. you know that that's where it's going to end, then you can brace you. You can feel that it's going to end. Well, so the nihilism of the story is very hard to take that first time. Right. And and for me, it wasn't that. It was just more that it ends on the dream. And it's like, oh, okay. And the second time, once you know that's... It's one of those movies that once you know that's where it ends... There's no issues. Yeah. Like, you feel every beat. You realize, like, there, well, there's you realize, attention to it. But also, it completely closes the circle because the right. opening image and the monologue at the beginning directly connects to the dream. But the issue is the first time you see it, yeah. you, you're you expecting there to be some sort of resolution. You're expecting something to happen, not, there, not that it's basically an epilogue. Yeah. And... So that that was my issue with the because, first time I saw because it. Because really the end is when Anton Chigurh gets the, in the accident. That's right. the end. Yeah. That's the actual end. It's even the technically the end of the book. There's still three more like little short sections in the book that are kind of dealing with the fallout of everything that's happened. Yeah. He's definitely less of a of a death figure. You understand him a little bit. He's less enigmatic even though he's no more explained but he feels a little less enigmatic in the book Um, maybe it's because he doesn't do he does some of the like cleaning obsessive compulsive things but not they're not identical but at the same time it's like the movie perfectly represents all the aspects of that character like without even though that's not 100% like exactly he doesn't take off the socks and stuff like it's a it's a little bit different uh how some of those things play out but it tells the same story like the story's not any different um and it was one of those movies like when i watched it in the theater i liked it but it didn't really like make a deep deep meaningful thing but it's been it had been mentioned kind of so much in kind of the Cone Brothers kind of mythol you know ouvre and everything that and a lot of people consider it to be one of the best films of the the twenty first century. It, that movie meant, means a lot to me because uh, when I saw it, I was in college. 
my first semester, and my dad came to visit me. I think it came out kind of around wintertime, maybe November somewhere. My dad came to visit me. Yeah, because he visited me on Thanksgiving, and I was all alone. Uh, and we watched that together in a small theater in Santa Fe, New Mexico, kind of like an art house theater. And, and me and my dad never get do that that often, just yeah. dad and father and son hanging out. And it, it, I, I kind of think my dad Well, and you were always more the movie watcher yeah. than he was. And my dad connected with it, I think, a lot. Kind of like the old old way of thinking, how we kind of talk about it. My dad... Your dad being a veteran, too, that probably... Or no, no, no. Who was it that was the veteran? In my my grandfather. Your grandfather. Yeah. My dad grew Sorry, up. Sorry, I totally... Well, my dad grew up in that military family I to- I totally around. butchered that. Sorry. No, no, that's that's cool. My dad... I though, miss... It's been so long <laughs> since I've seen your dad. My dad's a part of that gen generation, yeah. though, so he, he fits right yeah. in there. And but uh, I knew someone in your family. Right? Yeah. And... But... Um, that that movie did kind of hit on a personal yeah. level too, but um, also that kind of lone wolf kind of biker culture that yeah. your dad was a part of, even though that's not really in there. But that kind of lone wolf attitude mm-hmm. and that kind of mm-hmm. you know do I do I'll do whatever I need to do to survive. Well, like you know what what is it West Texas right kind of? Oh yeah, it's Southern Texas he, mostly. Uh, you know he goes out to, to the field to go hunt. My dad would go out to fields and go fish, yeah, you know, on his own in his pickup truck kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of <laughs> like d- doing this is what I do to relax. Yeah, <laughs> take a beer out there or something like that and just hang out. But yeah, you know, the whole setup guy just kind of gets himself into a situation that he didn't the prepare for. Doesn't the, know and it keeps on. getting deeper. Yeah, and deeper and, and deeper and deeper. Dude, <laughs> the literally, literally the the one person. Mm-hmm you could have gotten involved with that was like so what's interesting um so speaking of moments of adaptation so in the movie he he uh he asked about the tent. he was like where do you get poles for the tent we'd have to order them it's like well what's the tent you have with the biggest poles <laughs> well in the book and this is so coen brothers i'm really surprised that they didn't include it in the movie is um when he gets the tent, he just takes the poles out, puts them in his bag, and leaves and leaves the tent. And the guy's, "What about the tent?" <laughs> <laughs> but, but so Skyler, uh, uh, that's what I'll say about No Country for Old Men. And uh, Skyler, what have uh, you been consuming? Um, I can say this kind of quickly. Uh, the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Um, talk about a taking a kind of tried and true formula a Zelda game and totally just kind of reinventing the whole game while keeping it tied to how it it was the traits the kind of characteristics the things you like about Zelda but totally making it now into a uh, they call it modern Zelda game basically the legend is is it became an open world game a la Grand Theft Auto or Skyrim they, the, their inspiration, they said, was the very, very, very first Zelda game out. And that game was a map, and you could go anywhere you wanted. Yeah. And in the little um, instruction manual, there's a little um, picture drawing of Link sitting on the cliff looking out, and you see mountains and sky. And they took that inspiration and kind of recreated the whole game, and they said, you see that mountain over there? You can go to that mountain. I played this game. I still play it. And you can go to that mountain, dude. <laughs> it is... It, you can climb anything. The climbing is kind of what opens it up 
and it's it's just you know just real proud of Nintendo for going there and they actually did pay attention to a lot of modern games and they took everything that's good about those and trimmed the fat off I mean there's still some things in the game that people kind of hiccups on but overall it's a wonderful experience I have it on the Wii U because I don't have a Nintendo Switch yet but yeah. it is just I don't know you can get lost in it and <laughs> Justin, you have it, right? Have you tried yeah, getting I, into it a little bit? I mean, I got, I did decently. I think I did. We got through about like twenty of the temples, mm-hmm. something like that. Got a few upgrades, but I don't know. There's, it's a cool game. I like the being able to just kind of roam and um, skirls. That's kind of the biggest thing for me is that are tough battles if you get into them especially if you don't come in underprepared it's a very hard zelda game it is um my biggest my only real big complaint with it was opening up like you have to find the right person to teach you how to cook you know you need to cook but for me and that's one of the things you were talking about they wanted it to be like the original original legend of zelda where the whole thing was oh hey did you try putting a bomb against this you know this wall and blowing it up here to get into here and da, 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 do they da, call da. that the schoolyard talk right it, it was all yeah. schoolyard talk yeah and that's what this new one is i had to message one of my buddies and go hey how, <laughs> how do you cook <laughs> oh, you, oh you 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 do it at these areas i'm like yeah all it's letting me do is past time he's like oh you have to load everything into your arms and then cook i was going okay cool i'm glad somebody explained that to me <laughs> and then i found the person that explains it to you and i went oh okay but you have to just <laughs> trip over them to be able to get that. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I've not <laughs> played it. My brother-in-law was playing it the last time I saw him. And uh, the one part that really intrigued me was the uh, temples or what oh, do they call them? They're called, sorry to correct you, they're called shrines. Shrines. Right. Yeah, 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 shrines. So the part that really intrigued me was the fact that the shrines were all 3D puzzles. That's probably one of the coolest things about I was that. like this is the most fast I was like is this the first game that did this and then I was he was telling me not really but the way they do it is more unique than any and I was just like so you have to like move a certain element yeah. a specific way go and get the stuff then you have to go back change the way that the the shrine looks to get to something else and yeah. then and I was just like god this is fucking fascinating I was like I can't wait till a movie does something to this level because I think that's something like one of the things about video games that hasn't translated well to movies is the puzzles because the puzzles are always because in movies the hero has to solve the puzzle every time Uh there's no failure and then solve and then you know if they do it's like the last one that they struggle on but I think a puzzle like this where you don't really have to struggle it's different like it changes the shape of the room it changes the depth it changes the yeah i think something like that is going to translate to film and animation more than a lot of the other like it's almost do you remember on the original playstation there was this demo game that came with the the playstation where it was cubes that moved oh that's and you had to um, move it's called intelligent cube yeah uh it reminded me of that, but as like physical spaces that don't disappear. That game is 
great. That's an awesome game. I remember um, loving it. It's just, yeah. just been like 20 years since I played it. Mm. <laughs> so. That game has 120 shrines, and they're kind of like micro bits of just a puzzle. There's like one puzzle. You can kind of do maybe two elements to kind of, you know, and you can totally cheat it and not even have to do it the way it's supposed to somehow, and you can get through it. But I, I just love the fact that you, you yeah. can. Like, you can manipulate the and environment. That, that freedom to it, to do that is cool. You have to, you look in the distance and you see a shrine. You can mark it on your map, and you got to tread all the way over there to get to it. And when you get to it, it's like, yes, I can, you know, do this shrine. It's a change of pace. Well, and the, and the thing, of the one of the cool things about it is, like, with the, okay, so there's two, the weirdest thing about it is that it is a, you know, it is a hundred years later in the society that is still a medieval society, but he has a tablet. Yeah, basically <laughs> an iPad. That that they water damage to put more um, <laughs> to to expand the map. But the thing I like about the map is that unlike stuff like Assassin's Creed, where you get the next bit of map and it tells yes. you where everything is. Yes. With Z- with Breath of the Wild, is yeah. that right? Um, you actually, you are the one who puts the marks on the map for what you think they should represent. So, like, what I would do is I would put the skull for any shrines. Mm-hmm. I'd put, um, I think it was a diamond shape or something, but I'd put that for the towers. Yeah. If I came across an enemy I couldn't defeat, but they were a melee one, I'd do a sword. Yeah. If I came across um, an enemy that was a ranged i'd put the archer or the bow on there yeah. like that's obviously by the time i got about halfway through doing that i went oh well the you know this is probably more meant to mark what treasures you can find <laughs> and da 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 but at the same time when you play the game again but for you me you know those things what those things are right but f- and i can i could wipe them all out anytime i wanted to yeah. and start doing it how it should be done but for me it makes more sense to do hey the bow means it's a ranged thing these enemies are going to attack me from a range like me just putting a skull where somebody's going to be attacking me um it just kind of goes though that doesn't tell me shit and, and can't you just like basically skip directly to the end if you want to you can people beat the game in like 30 minutes already yeah because you can just yeah you, you can, can just walk to that area like in the first zelda game i think if i remember right you could skip and go straight to ganon i think after you get like the bomb yet because it's like he's like kind of like in a well, actually, I don't remember, but you could you could even play the whole entire game without getting the sword and just kill people with bombs. You, know? <laughs> you can do whatever you want in this game, and it's just the freedom to do what you want. And everyone's like, people e- are like, oh. even though it's a very clearly yeah. set thing, you can still and people are kind of like do it your own way. freaking out. Like, why is everyone getting so excited over a Nintendo game? They're doing all the stuff when people have been doing it for years. It's just that they just made it. Well, fresh. they took a classic. They, they yeah. revitalized the class. They, and this is something that you would hope that they could do something with a movie too, like kind of same but fresh or revitalize it, make it just do something cool with it. And I think you know. Well, and there's the whole kind of like technology yeah. magic theme, technology yeah. and magic well, versus magic. Like, like the the tech that Justin's talking about, it's like actually like future tech that's ancient future tech, I guess. Oh, it's like ancient they aliens? They like uncovered <laughs> that from like ancient races that used to live there called the Sheikah, I think. Like, And that's like a race that's been in Zelda games for a long time, too. So. Yeah, it's just a weird thing for him to have a tablet running around this medieval <laughs> world. Yeah. And, and he pulls it up and he's like tapping it and 
Anyway. Well, they, they obviously <laughs> based it off of the Wii U controller, yeah. which is what we're playing it on, despite them having a new system out. Well, for but it. they knew they were still gonna have people who couldn't necessarily get in on the yeah. Switch initially. Well, Justin, what have you been consuming? So, what if I told you guys, and, and you know, I won't necessarily say stop me if you've heard this one before, but what if I were to tell you that there was a um, a Justin Lin movie that had Tyrese Gibson in it and Jordana Brewster in it, but it was about boxing? I would tell you, but did they make a Fast and Furious movie that we didn't know about? Well, the the fun thing about this is that this actually came um, before he did Fast and Furious. Really? Yes. Um, so it actually came out... Between s- 3 and 4? No, it actually came out the same year as Tokyo Drift. Oh. It also stars a um, this actor... Named uh oh, what what's his name, uh James Franco, James Franco, <laughs> and it's essentially a remake of um an officer and a gentleman, but it's a boxing movie. That's would would you have heard of this before? Uh, I don't think so. It's called Annapolis. Definitely have not heard of it. Um, set against the backdrop of boxing at the Naval Academy, uh, centers on a young man from the wrong side of the tracks whose dream of attending Annapolis becomes a reality. So yeah, it's it's one of those movies that the only the cover looks like uh looks like fucking Pearl Harbor by Michael Bay. Yeah, it's essentially officer and a gentleman with boxing. Hmm. And it's just weird to me that... Donnie Wahlberg's in it? Yeah, yeah, that too. Wow. Yeah, it just seems really weird that Justin Lin directed a movie that had both... Gene McBride's in it, wow. Yeah, um, that had Jordana Brewster and Tyrese Gibson in it. Tyrese Gibson actually plays a complete hard-ass. He is the um, antagonist... He's not the comic relief? No, he's the antagonist. He is the straight man antagonist of this movie. He's he's the nurse ratchet of this movie. Wow, he's the guy who is so by the by Book. the rules, by the book sort of thing that um, he causes a character to try and commit suicide because of four seconds. Wow, that's intense. <laughs> right, um, the whole reason like I've heard about this movie for a long time, and the whole reason that I ended up watching it. Whoa, it only made $17 million. Yeah. Wow, this was a bomb. Yeah, um, the only reason I, like, I've heard of it as a... Surprised they gave him such a big franchise. Well, it was the same year, so I know, they would have been at the same... I know, but still. To be fair, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift was the one that... Um, kind of made the series matter more. Oh, no, it was going to be a complete bomb as well, and they... Um, had to make a agreement with Vin to for his cameo at the end, of, like his post credits cameo. They made the they showed it to test audiences, and it was completely bombing. And they went to him and he said, "Okay, if you give me the 
um, Pitch Black Chronicles of Riddick writes, I'll show up in this cameo. And so he did. So we got Riddick because of... Because of... Interesting. Tokyo Drift. And the if Vin had not shown up, Fast and the Furious would have been a dead franchise. Would have been a three-movie franchise. Right. And it would have been completely dead because they lost Vin after the first movie. No. And five lo- movies, five <laughs> movies later, still haven't seen a single one. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I'll have, but I, I, I do want to, I do want to watch the Justin Lin ones just because he's he's a really good filmmaker. I I, I do have, and that's to also show, when yeah. it started. Got it. That's when it started transitioning into them being superheroes. Was Justin Lin? Yeah. Well, it was Fast and Furious where it moved to, which that. is four, right? Right. Yeah, and um, a lot of people still say four is the w- one of the worst of them. In fact, I've heard Fast Five's the best. Probably, yeah. yeah. But maybe I'll just watch Fast Five. I, I've, <laughs> I've I've got something for you to watch that kind of goes through the whole thing and why to watch them. But yeah, um, after two, they lost Paul Walker. Actually, they lost everybody. Which is why it has a. That's why it moved to Tokyo. New character Drift. and a new director and. Yeah, the funny thing actually is is that... But 3 actually takes place before 7, right? In between 6 and 7. Right, right. I heard, I've, I've heard enough people talk about how weird the continuity is. Yeah, it's especially... Because there's one character who um, die Or he dies in 3. But he's in 4 I think 5 he, and I think six. he's in 5. He's in 5 and 6. And he <laughs> keeps kind of going like, Oh yeah, I need to go back to Tokyo. <laughs> But he's been there long enough to actually have set up operations and have his whole thing going on. Um, he's basically the Brad Pitt character from Ocean's Eleven, like always snacking on stuff, just super cool, super awesome. His name is literally Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Like it, it, wow! It is amazing. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, like I've never even seen any of the Transformers movies after the first one. You know, not having well, seen that, any that, of these. That's totally fine. You don't need to see them at all. Because, my goodness. But the Fast and the Furious movies, not one single Fast and the Furious? Not one Not single, even the first not one? Not even the first one. Not even when it came out. Because I was like, I'd seen Gone in 60 Seconds, and uh-huh. I was like, whatever. And, well, I mean, there's parts of Gone in 60 Seconds that I liked. But then Fast... Fast and the Furious came out. And I was like, I don't care. There's eight now, I guess. Yes. This was the eight. Um, yeah, Fate of the fate. Furious. Fate. Yeah. Uh, I, so, is it, so is the next one, The Furious or Fine? I was trying to think of a Fast 9 <laughs> pun title. I can't think of that right now. Because hmm. this is the start of the last three the Fast Fine trilogy. The final yeah, th- trilogy. Yeah, this is the new trilogy that we'll is post-Paul Walker. number 10 is supposed to be the last one or something. And then there's spin-offs with The Rock and Jason Statham sort of being planned, but they think Vin Diesel might kind of put a stop to that because this is Vin Diesel's franchise, not The Rock. 
but well, everybody loves the rock. The rock's in every fucking movie known well, to man the, the, right the, now. The, that isn't a Marvel movie. That's supposed to be a big budget franchise. No, the the thing is, is that um, after eight, like the post credit sequence was supposed to be a lead in to the Jason Statham and The Rock um, spinoff movie, mm-hmm. and then put the kibosh on that. But they're still going to come out with it. Oh, good. But okay. the Fast and Furious franchise, they have stated that it's only going to be ten films, and they're going to stop at that point. The fifth one is the one where everybody says it's the best one, and that's where it got to where it is now. I think that's the one with the big bank vault that they're dragging on the highway. Um, Crazy. I think that was five. Yeah, was five. five. That's the one that has the rock when he first appears. See the yeah. I yeah I we, we were talking about. I've heard that five is. That's the one where they just best. went there because uh, I, I learned more about it because after watching the How Did This Get Made or listening to the last podcast and then the follow-up, they talked to some of the stunt guys from it and they talked about how they said, we need to rejuvenate this franchise. We're going to do real stunts, less CG. S- so <laughs> Han's name, the best character out of three, is Han Xiaol, S-E-O-U-L hyphen O H. Han Solo. O. Han Solo. <laughs> like it is amazing. As I and wow. as I said, he's the Brad Pitt from um, of Ocean. the Ocean's um, series. Is just always snacking on something. Totally laid back. Yeah. Like he's, he was cool. I liked Han. Like he, he's the best. Like yeah. and and honestly, he could come back because um, they killed Letty in four. Um, and then brought her back in five. <laughs> and uh, honestly, what they're doing right now is they're just... I mean, they're basically immortal at this point, <laughs> I've heard. They're superheroes. Yeah, <laughs> and they're, they're basically just courting all... So far, all of the like the villains... Like, Jason Statham is a villain in seven, but in eight, he's part of the crew. So, Charlize Theron's the villain in this one, right? Right. So, so she's, she's going to be a member of the crew in the next one? Probably. Speaking of shows they run, I found out Atomic Blonde is actually based on a graphic novel series. Okay. Which makes me excited to read the graphic novel series. But it's still Apparently one of the people... Th- it's oh. still the ha- one half of the original directing duo that did the first John Wick. I did also... Uh, last thing, and then we'll jump over, but I did find out that um, the uh, a lot of the people involved with the first John Wick were um, second unit directors on um, Civil War. Oh, that makes sense. So I was like, oh, holy shit. Okay, cool. Let's yeah, do this thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Why? I bet a bunch of them are going to be on. Yeah. Um, I bet some of the people who worked on Deadpool are all going to be people on Infinity War. and Probably. Some of the people from Logan are probably going to be on that. Um, so last thing I will say about Annapolis, other than its connections with Justin Lin and the Fast and Furious, and for some reason, like Tyrese Gibson being the hard ass, really weird, is um, it's decent. The only reason I ended up watching it is that it popped up on a like cracked list or something about deceptive trailers, <laughs> like like Drive was on there, stuff like that. And then they yeah. said, yeah, like, Drive's trailer was definitely deceptive, right? Um, I think I saw the list you're talking about. Yeah, but they go like, hey, this like two second f- like flash that you see of a boxing ring. This is that you know the movie is actually a boxing movie, and I and I watched it, and literally like the last third of it is a boxing movie. 
the other two thirds of the movie is a hey, you are in Officer and a Gentleman. We're you know Top Gun. We're making you into a soldier. We're gonna <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like now box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically that. Is that like in order? He's he is the dumbest of the dumb sort of like. Uh, James Franco's character is the type of person that bets his entire um, his entire group's meal on stuff he doesn't know and is too proud like too proud and dumb to say I don't know <laughs> like and that and his way of proving himself what a jackass <laughs> yeah he's that type of person and he's you're, you're the type of guy who gets mutinied on dude <laughs> right and that that's one of the things on there but um, his way of redeeming himself is to train for the box, you know, for boxing, build himself up, get the people around him to kind of help him out and barely make weight and then kind of get to the top in a very rocky scenario of, you know. <laughs> it's a decent movie, but it does not show at all. Like, as I said, Tokyo Drift was going to kill the Fast and the Furious franchise, but Vin Diesel wanted the Riddick rights. So and boom, a epic was born. Yeah, and now what the arguably one of the biggest franchises that is non Disney. Yeah, the billion dollars. Literally, movies. probably the only franchise that's gone up, right, yeah. as it's gone on. Yeah. Because Transformers, even though it still makes a billion dollars, it's not making the over a billion dollars it was. And I don't. I I think this. I think this movie might be the nail in the coffin. I'm watching. Might not make a billion. We'll we'll see. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, auteur theory. I mean, I'm just. I just think it's funny that last year was Civil War and this year is Civil War and all the other franchises. Yeah. No. All the other big franchises, they're like, do that Civil War shit. They made a billion dollars. Well, <laughs> they're predicting this summer is going to be like the lowest box office performance. Which is funny because all those biggest movies are going to make billions. Yeah, like one big movie out of the rest. <laughs> Sleeper but at hits, the too. They but, at sleep. but at the same time, I mean, this summer looks fucking pretty rocking. Really? Well, that, there was something I was just... Because oh, yeah. Edgar Wright's got a new movie coming out. Okay, yeah. There's... I mean, there's... Uh, yeah, I don't know about Baby Driver. Um, I, I think... Just don't... Just don't even think about the trailer. But... Um, I don't think Wonder... I think Wonder Woman's going to outperform. I don't, I don't be, think so. Because... The untapped market. I, I, I Unfortunately, I, re- I think it's going to... I think this is going to be the movie. Men don't go. Women do. And that's going to be the difference maker. I, I hope I you know it's one of those that it could be bad, it could be good, but there's a lot of fucking women who are like finally, fucking finally. Yeah, it's about fucking time a movie was made for me. So Nathan, what have you been consuming? So uh, Justin uh, turned me on to a small little YouTube channel called Counterpoints. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I'm not going to talk as much about ContraPoints because I really want to talk about one of those things that I've heard about that I kind of started taking deep dive now. So ContraPoints is hosted by a genderqueer YouTuber who 
over the course of his YouTube life has gone from Which being... Which has only been about a year and well, a couple months. Well, according he, to his original channel information that he talks about in the How I Became a Feminist SJW, he used to have an old YouTube channel. He's been on YouTube for like five years, some four or five years from basically what um, he's saying. That he did mention that or... He had an older YouTube they, channel. They mentioned that yeah. as part of their... Um, the discussion on persona yeah is that they're they were part of the old atheist youtube movement yeah with like yeah all all all, all of those douchebags all all the fuck uh, sticks that yeah. are up there <laughs> all of the guys who are basically who are this far for or an inch away from being f- fucking cheering for the alt right but but ContraPoint the ContraPoints channel has been around oh, for about right. 14 15 months. Yeah. It's a relatively new channel. Um she he they he he, he she they likes all of the <laughs> he, he they literally say in one of the their videos that I I just like just all of them. Just say all of them. <laughs> I don't care. Uh he I, I, I'd rather it be the confusing and hear all of them than it be like one, you know, uh, because that's that's how they feel at this point. Um, they, they is easier to say, I guess. Yeah, well, <laughs> they has become a, a much more acceptable thing in both the trans and gender community, especially people who are transitioning. It's less offensive. It's less it's less denial. It's less misgendering. You know, it's sexless. The singular, the singular they is a sexless term as opposed to a sexual term, you know. But uh, so the the thing is, is there were two videos that really were enlightening to me. Like as someone who's been around tr- the trans and LGBTQ community in general, tertiarily and directly, whether it's through friends or uh, or even the minister who married my wife and I. Uh, um, who I'd known through her whole transition period, basically. Um, so it's like I've always been kind of connected to it, but I don't have the same body and sexual issues and sexual orientation or uh, things coming up in, in my life in the same way, but I've always been kind of involved into a certain extent. Um because I mean I was 17 years old and I knew someone who was transitioning and that was in 2001 I knew someone all the way back in 2001 who was transitioning that was not the case for a lot of people <laughs> most people didn't right. even know people were transitioning until maybe two or three years ago you right know? right um, but watching the ginger him explaining him she they explaining uh, uh, genderqueer and then watching the gender video what is gender yeah he got away. She got. They got away with doing literally the most sexually explicit demonstration of a hot dog and a watermelon. <laughs> a, a clear watermelon cut out like it's a vagina. <laughs> no one. No report that hasn't been taken down. Still on there. It's amazing. Hmm. Um. Very much intersectional. Uh, very feminist, uh, very deconstructionist also. Multiple points of view, 
multiple sources from different points of view and and whether intersectional or not whether traditional or not if you type in what is gender contrapoints it will light honestly your mind on fire it's so good you can honestly um with contrapoints i totally recommend um i found out about them whenever um when Lindsay ellis hosted a um basically all the people who i now watch for analysis all of them kind of came together and talked for and almost two hours i think about their personas and them writing from the persona but not actually reflecting who they are as people and kind of what they them fucking themselves over and contrapoint specifically pointed out that they started out with a lot of self-loathing like um self-depreciating humor to try and get past a lot of people's uncomfortability with it but has now kind of shot themselves in the foot because and they've addressed this in their videos too right like it's, a, it's a topic that is even brought up in the videos themselves but, but there's also which is what is so interesting about the channel because it has evolved you can watch the slow evolution right to a much more radical place actually than it starts you can see the evolution well, my big thing on there was going to say state that when they started out with the ContraPoints channel, it is lo-fi, low, low everything. Like, you can tell that it is somebody just setting up a camera, not working on lighting, not doing anything. No costume. No con- Well, very little well, yeah. costuming. Not, not in the way that they are doing now. Bad makeup, all that stuff. And then with the gender queer video i think it is the gender queer video e- even with the sjw feminist it well, starts it started but with the gender queer specifically that's where it's the hallway shot with multiple lighting speci- colored lighting colored lighting you know it, it it has in the last four months it has specifically changed contra c-o-n like, like the game yeah, <laughs> yeah um, contra not counter it's okay but, it happens um, They've their synonyms definitely um, stepped up their game in the last several in the last four months. It has become something completely different, and that's kind of why I went. Here's the feminist SJW video, and here's, here's the gender yeah. queer. Just so you can see the evolution here. But even compared to the first video, like even the SJW is starting to be more complicated, and even to an essence way more theatrical. Right. The kind of the kind of honest theater that they're doing is so fucking fascinating. I'm like, well, I was also really surprised by the race video. I haven't watched that one yet. Oh, it that that's part of me watching and going, holy like holy shit, this is something completely different than they were a year ago. But the thing that uh, now in the SJW feminist video is the book Ways of Seeing by John Berger. Now, John Berger made a BBC documentary called Ways of Seeing. It's a four-episode documentary. Uh, it is currently available on YouTube in two different formats, subtitled and non-subtitled. Um, it's mostly from the perspective of art. How does art viewed in culture? How does art affect how we view things in culture? But then it transitions into also being about, at that point, late 1970s capitalist culture but from a 
feminist Marxist analysis of like, let's deconstruct the nude in oil painting. And then for the last 15 minutes, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to talk to women about it and interview them about how they perceive the nude through art history <laughs> and not just like sit there and tell you what he, what he thinks women should think about it. Um, so the, the transition of like topics, he starts out about oil painting and museums and then copying and, and the predilection of like the copy becoming more prevalent than the original. And then uh, being in the room to see a painting versus seeing it in a book or photography, how photography changed our relationship to art, not just being able to create copies, but how like photography itself is real in the way that painting isn't. But at the same time, you may or may not react to photography the same way you react to a painting. And then the next episode was about the nude, being seen, critiquing the nude. And then, like, the next episode was for, for the collector, for the upper class, for the how the upper class saw themselves, for how, like, the, 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 the art was, in a way, its own fetishization of, like, wealth. And, like, but then also, like, the exceptions, the artists who were the exceptions during that time period like pre pre 20th century and then how advertising and the system of images and glamour and celebrity have affected how art and photography and everything relate to each other and it's just ah it's fucking fascinating he just died this year john berger did hmm. and uh there's some later interviews and stuff that i haven't gotten to watch yet but uh totally fascinating it's as much worthy of a deep dive as contrapoints is i'm really need to dive even deeper into contrapoints because it's completely fascinating and just having someone who's a queer youtuber kind of like slowly getting some traction and success is a a good thing you know (laughs) like the more representation there is you know as much as they get just completely lambasted with hate at times. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the other thing that they do in, in their videos is they address the kind of comments they get and the kind of like... Well, it sounds more interesting full of substance than like a Jeffree Star video. Yeah, well, and even some of those fucking... Some of these semi-alt-right fucking Trump supporters that have become... That are basically just fucking racist sexist idiots who have like I love video games but I hate women you know (laughs) kind of fucking people Uh, it's much more interesting to like watch someone who's like hey I have to interact with these douchebags all the time but here's my perspective on things so uh Skyler uh what uh what have you been consuming well I was going to talk about a movie trailer but eh I've had I'll talk about some music I've had this thing stuck in my head you ever heard of the disintegration loops no by William Basinski. Um, it's ambient avant-garde. Okay. Um, basically, it's kind of a fascinating story. Um, is it recent or is it older? It goes back. Th- these were all kind of released in the early 2000s, but they go back years before this. William Basinski, he's from Texas, and he spent a lot of time in uh, in music cla- in college and music, and he started doing his own ambient works 
and uh, it looks like it was recorded in 1982. Yeah, and basically what it is, and the name is kind of fitting. He played these loops, and he was just trying to go and copy them because they're they're so old, and the tape was wearing yeah. out. <coughs> and as he records them, they're disintegrating. They're literally falling apart, and um, they're all. Um, the, the feeds the back into that whole cassette conversation. They you were slowly about. deteriorate as it passes by the tape head, and um, but it produces these noise and cracks. So the thing about it is that the recordings coincided with 9/11, and you can look it up on YouTube: disintegration tapes or di- disintegration loops. loops. Look it up, and usually the very first video that comes up is the very first disintegration loop the most well-known it's called dlp1 i think and this is legit he lived in um he lived in uh, new york city at the time and he went he went and recorded a still image or just a section of the city with all the smoke coming from the towers he filmed it and that music was playing in the background as he filmed it and it fades out and just goes along with the uh, sky turning dark, and it is very eerie. It's haunting, and it's like a reflection of death itself because the, the tape just disintegrates as you listen to it. And if you like ambient music, it's it's the same thing. It just kind of fills the background. You know, Brian Eno is the one who kind of got it going, but it's fascinating to me. And all those different loops that he did are all just they're totally different but they all disintegrate and um that that's basically it uh it was just something i was listening to they kind of did a box set and got a perfect 10 from pitchfork which never happens apparently on that site (laughs) if people like pitchfork that is but anyway it it was highly uh received when they all started coming out um it's uh very very interesting um if you like kind of like avant-garde music but kind of coincide with like real life events but as opposed to like something like apex's twin ambient works where it's just a collection <laughs> yeah this no, is this like is, this is straight up ambient noise in the background it's like you can hear brass you can hear slight drums you can hear all this sound that he just kind of combined into one thing looping over and over and over and as it goes and disintegrates, it gets slower and slower, and you can feel it hit those cracks, and it's like, you know, and so he was <laughs> he was definitely manipulating the tape, and it was stuff doing it all itself. Well, what I'm saying, yeah. like, yeah, the years of creating oh, yeah, the yeah. loops, yeah, he was probably manipulating the tape and yeah. cutting the tape in different ways, and yeah, and he was doing all this to try and preserve it, but he just went ahead and let it keep going. Just, just to let it die. And the last but day recording he it. was working on it, 9-11 happened. And he goes up to his roof and films that, and the music's playing with it. It's it's crazy. You can find that on YouTube, like I said. But uh, anyway, Justin, what have you been consuming? So, I have been uh, consuming the Illumination Entertainment movie, Sing. Wow. Um, you know, I've got kids, they're young and all that stuff. My thing about Illumination Entertainment is... So do you like that there's the uh, hedgehog with a headdress on? <laughs> I was like, wow, how sensitive of you. Yeah, essentially what it looks like, yeah. Now, the, the thing about it is, I don't know how to quantify Illumination Entertainment movies. 
Well, Illumination isn't America-based, if I remember. I, I'll look it up as we're... Yeah, but my, my thing is is that if I tell you what a Disney animated movie is... Okay. You know what I'm... What essentially you're or a dream... Or in a way a dream works. Or DreamWorks. Or I could say Sony Entertainment, um, which is like cloudy with the, um, a chance of meatballs. Like... I, I can explain those things to you, but when I say Illumination Entertainment... It's pretty much Despicable Me. It's Despicable Me. It's um, Secret Life of Pets. The Lorax. It's the Lorax. Which is a very poorly reviewed film. Yes. Um, there's not anything that really links the stuff they're doing together. They're doing together. It's... Wow! Yeah, it's it. It might be like early. Well, and early there's so there's not very many films for there's, there's being seven years old. At the yeah, I'd say maybe the best thing I could quantify it as is early DreamWorks. Okay. Okay. Apparently, they are an American animation film production company. But I was, if I remember right, a lot of Despicable Me was made in France. But there, there's not a general feel that puts them together. Yeah. The thing about Sing, and it doesn't sound like a really good kids movie, is it's it starts out using a Beatles song, but it's soul or it's sung by a um I think it's a lamb, but I'm not sure about that. But it's like this this koala it's the thing that made him love theater. And now he's this kind of shyster businessman who keeps having... It's basically almost the plot to the producers. It doesn't go to the uh, cynical way of them making money, but it's about a failed um, showman that's running this theater who keeps trying to have these hits, but everything just fails because he sucks at his job, but he loves theater above all else. So I will say this is just looking at the box office. Uh, so the budgets, they don't have a single failure. Yeah. They're, they're, they're doing a decent job. I, I mean, and I can't, I mean, I can't, and I mean, you look at Leica, they don't really have a single real success. Right. Uh, but all of their movies are incredible. Right. But and the, these are decent. They're not bad. They're not early DreamWorks bad. Yeah. Um, like. But they're also not early Pixar good. Right. They're, no, they're, <laughs> they're nowhere in the league of Pixar. They're not even in the league of DreamWorks right now. They just exist. Like, I do not like Secret Life of Pets. I still um, haven't seen it. I've seen it a couple times now. Like, for me, the soundtrack is more for almost for anything that's not a Despicable Me movie. The soundtrack is what makes these movies. Like, at one point in Secret Life of Pets, they have a full-on Grease. The you know, we'll be together. Like the kind of you know that whole seg segment, um, but. And this, it starts out with a Beatles song that's given like the full opera treatment. Um, they have a ton of different pop, pop songs that they're using on there. Um, the one part that actually got me like going like, wow, this is really cool, um, is probably second act, everything crumbles and falls apart. 
before the big third act performance. The all is lost moment. Yeah. Is um, he gets the famous opera singer that he watched when a kid to come and watch like their dress rehearsal. And basically the plot of this story is that he's a failing businessman in a last ditch effort to like make it big. He decides to do a American Idol style singing competition. So it's it's kind of a follies, like a Broadway, like the last, it's the last chance. It's right. The, last. the thing is, is that he goes to make a thousand um, dollar flyer, a flyer that says, hey, you win a thousand dollars and it gets knocked up to a hundred thousand dollars and it blows out the window and that's how it's distributed amongst the city. You know, one of those very over the top, yeah. never, you know. Whatever. I mean, there's animals talking and singing. It's mm. not that realistic. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> but, um, I, I always love sometimes being like, uh, you do realize stop. it's not real, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's still telling a story. Um, he cares about suspension of disbelief still. So What a beautiful uh, man. Fuck off. <laughs> so um, he gets tons of people all around the block still not realizing that it says $100,000. He's put the $1,000 in this chest to show off to everybody. Um, and everybody who performs is good and they show off, you know, they're using all these recognizable songs. Um, and he gets it down to like this group of six. And they all have their issues like the hedgehog with the headdress or porcupine with the headdress is a punk rock singer. Her boyfriend is like, you know, he's the um, he's the singer songwriter. She's the one who kind of is supposed to be singing backup vo- vocals, but kind of always overpowers him. She goes into the competition to do it for them, and he ends up cheating on her. You know that sort like of you thing, d- like you do, right? And so. Um, the porcupine or the koala tries to get her to sing beforehand is trying to get her to sing um call me maybe and she's like oh really okay so you want me to do something like this and she sings and she can totally hit the notes and she does something and he's like oh yeah that's great and completely dismissive of her it's like oh oh it's almost like you can read my flimsy teenage mind yeah yeah totally yeah let's do this you know whatever there are a few likable characters the gorilla um, is part of a mobster family that's looking to do this big heist, but he's a singer at heart. The <laughs> pig, the pig, um, the two pigs that are performing together, one is a foreign guy who just can dance like nobody's business. The w- woman is a um, married mother of 25 piglets. And the father, none of them recognize she's even there. She even makes, overnight, makes a Rube Goldberg-style conveyor belt sort of system. And the husband doesn't even realize she's not there, and the kids don't realize she's not there. Wow. And she can sing like nobody's business, but it's very boring boring because she just stands there in one place. You know, there's all these different archetypes. The By far the worst archetype is a um, mouse. Not sure if it's supposed to be a church mouse or anything like that, but it's done by a Frank Sinatra type character who play at the beginning plays the saxophone on a street corner. And he's more concerned whenever a um, goat, I think it's a goat, 
tips him 25 cents and tells him that there's only that's all he has he then accosts the guy um steal like rifles through his pockets until he finds a clip of like a hundred dollars or something like that and then points out to everybody that the goat lied and steals the money from the guy and we're supposed to like this character um the one moment for me that actually made me go like oh wow this is actually pretty well done is he completely strips away all the glass inside of his inside of the area steals water from like a, the local water tower and fills it up so that it becomes a like water stage and it's kind of almost like the zootopia levels of a city where um there are these little um color changing squid that work at the local fancy restaurant that he hires and so they're actually moving in time with him to the beat of the song with him walking changing colors as he's walking through it and it looks awesome and they're like holy shit he did it um some thugs come in after the mouse and end up destroying the stage and ends up destroying the theater it's a decent movie throughout um I kind of wanted to mention the the mouse for a specific reason. When they finally decide to put on the benefit show, once they realize, hey, there's no money, whatever, they just do the show because, hey, we re all really wanted to do the show. The mouse is there and kind of goes, oh, is the $100,000 really, is it real now? And he goes, no, there's no money. He's like, oh, you know, screw this. I'm not going to do this show for anybody. He leaves, and every single character has an emotional payoff for their story. Okay. You know, the um, the, the pig mother and the um, self-centered uh, foreign pig that can dance but can't sing, they have their thing, and it makes the husband and the kids recognize the mother, and the husband, you know, kisses the mother, and, you know, typical musical, hey oh, you, you actually exist again sort of thing. There's emotional payoff for him. The gorilla who has gotten his father's gang imprisoned because he ran off is playing on the, the TV and the father, you know, the father realizes, oh, that's my son and breaks out of prison so he can get back to him. Everybody has an emotional payoff except for the mouse. The mouse leaves and is walking down the street and sees the performance on TV and all this crowd's really into it. And they're like, oh, these people are amazing. The guy goes, really? There's not a bit of telling among them. Oh yeah, like you could do better. And you go, you know what, yeah. And he goes back and does, throws in for his performance. And he's singing, I did it my way. And it's a big triumphant sort of thing. Like helicopters come up and lift him off the stage and he's swinging around with the microphone as he's singing it. They have to intercut it with another character's payoff to make you care anything that happens during that sequence. And then he arrives and at the end of it, the, the people who are watching it, like completely off screen, nowhere near the stage go, oh yeah, yeah, he did a really good job. Like what, the, like I actually, at one point the kid- So in Patton, so you remember when Patton Oswalt talks about doing uh, ghostwriting on movies? So Patton Oswalt has stories about working on movies and doing, and one time, or more than one time, but being brought in to literally write off-screen dialogue by characters to animated movies 
you've literally got a that's someone's rewrite of right. something that this this didn't test well. We need a joke here. Right. Someone um, needs to be told that he did a good job. That character literally is escaping right then by the thugs that he's ripped off continually throughout the movie. He gets plucked up and eaten, and I was happy. Wow. I was like, yes, that character finally, and then somebody hits it with the door, and he flies out, you know, like Tweety Bird going out of Sylvester's. Because um, it's a kid's movie. Because it's a kid's movie. And Tweety Bird flying out of Sylvester's mouth, and then them escaping. And you're just like, that motherfucker needs to die. <laughs> Everybody else gets a payoff, even if the last song's not as good. But it does, you know, it's a decent job. It's not anything you would ever consider as a kid's movie. But it's just, it's a, as I said, for some reason with Illumination Entertainment, I cannot pin down what the fuck they are. Like, personally, I think that... Well, apparently, according to their uh, information, they're basically just doing sequels of all the things they've done that have been successful. Well, I mean, to be fair, the only thing that they have sequels for is the... Um, Despicable Me. Yeah, but Secret Life of Pets and like they've announced apparently Secret Life of Pets and Sing are getting sequels now. Yeah, but those uh, they were until they announced those those were new properties yeah. that they were just attempting. Out. There is no reason for it to have succeeded. Yeah, it's just one of those like this doesn't even seem like it's a kids movie sort of thing. Well, and also like I I heard that it was kind of from other YouTuber movie reviewers the the sing uh product placement in the movie theaters was fucking annoying because oh. you would go and see a horror movie and on <laughs> the top of the fucking horror movie it's like sing comes out blah 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 like a fucking little thin plastic placard is on all these fucking movie theaters to like go see sing i i did find it weird walking through the toy aisle at walmart and the koala had a toy a koala in a business Which suit. is funny because in Secret Life of Pets, the Sphinx, who's like uh, one of the villains for one of the acts, the Sphinx, the naked cat, has oh, no yeah, toy. That's he has no toy. That's the uh, first act sort of thing. Yeah, yeah but, 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 but surprisingly, every other character, every other like major character has a fucking toy except the Sphinx cat. Right. Yeah. Which Aaron is super pissed about because <laughs> Sphinx representation. Ah, oh, damn it. Speaking of you, took. So while we were in Portland, Mr. Mr. Justin here had to take care of our kitties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to meet the Sphinx. I in did. Real, real life. I got, met a, I met, got to meet two out of three, you know, kitties. The uh, Tinky, the Sphinx, is uh, very like, pay attention to me. She's like, hey, who are you? Pet me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Sati was like, "Hey, who who are you?" Tushi was like, "No, no, yeah, no." So. For three days, he was over there for three days. Never, never saw. Never saw Tushi. I was, I was like, is, I, the Russian blue of our. Yeah. yeah, I had to open up a few doors just to be like, uh, "Did you get trapped somewhere? Like, yeah. am I supposed <laughs> to, to hear sure. you screaming or yeah. not?" <laughs> Okay, no, cool. I have no idea where you're hiding. Cool. I'll just Either I'll just assume you're alive and hopefully I don't get yelled at. And, and she was. So you're good, good. Good, good. So yeah, I just don't know what Illumination Entertainment like 
like I honestly still don't know why. I mean, I guess I can understand why Despicable Me won out over, um, Hop. No, not Hop. I'm there was a Megamind. Like Megamind's I, DreamWorks. Right, but Despicable Me is Illumination. They came out at oh. the same time. Okay. So I don't know why. I other than the the Minions is probably the reason why, but. Megamind to me was always the superior film. Megamind's great. Yeah. Um, Megamind's almost kind of up there with Incredibles, and it's like distillation of superheroes. Yeah, and deconstruction of the tropes and everything. It's a better movie than Batman v Superman, that's for sure. (laughs) But yeah, so that was just my thing. I still haven't seen the extended cut because I'm just like. It's. I mean, honestly. I really want to watch a three and a half hour fucking. But Zach it doesn't Snyder. feel like it's a three and a half hour movie. Yeah, and that first one really did. That's, that's and that and that the problem was the way they cut it is that it made it feel longer because you're just like, what the fuck is going on here? Why is this bullshit still ha- like literally? I almost the it's the first time. It, the only movie I've ever walked out of was Thirteen Ghosts. <laughs> like I walked the fuck out. Yeah, I was forced to walk back in because of friends. Yeah, because we had to meet the other friends when the movie was over. So I saw like the end of Thirteen Ghosts, but I missed like at least an hour of it. I was gonna say honestly, I just rewatched Thirteen Ghosts, and the ghost design is good that no, for the time. Well, I was gonna say the thing about it is, is especially with the opening, like it does some interesting things, um, but. Once you get like the the house being a clockwork house is a cool idea, but everything in between it's just snap cuts. Yeah, and Cabin in the Woods did it better with the with the way they did the. Yeah, but it also took what ten more fucking years to come out. Yeah, right. yeah. So they they did essentially the same thing, just you know way better. Right. <laughs> they you know had competent people behind it. But watching the opening, I was like, oh, wow, this actually has some, in- like, it's not necessarily good, but it has some interesting things it's doing, yeah. like with Matthew Lillard trying to take his pills and then getting knocked out of his hand and the whole back and forth there. It's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm seeing what you're doing here. Yeah. And then it just that, fell that apart afterwards. That's And literally at a certain point, I think it was even during the fight, the, f- the fight between Batman versus Superman, I was literally looking at Aaron, at just... I almost said, do you want to go? Oh, <laughs> uh, I honestly, I fell asleep watching it, and that that was more of working like a 13-hour day and all the stuff on top of it, but yeah. Uh, I can totally see that being like a very tedious, tedious, tedious exercise. I mean, wow. That like it's, it's one of those things where like everyone was like, "Wonder Woman was the best part." I'm like, the best part of shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Batman I, was the best part of shit. Like I, I, I will say, Ben Affleck and the cowl is some some of the some of the best visualization of Batman. I don't think it's the best characterization of Batman, but I think it's some of the best visualization of like Batman as a superhero. You know, right. like but fuck man, uh, and the I I didn't 
I have nothing against Gal Gadot. I'm probably going to go see Wonder Woman, despite, you know, anything else. But it's just, I don't know, it's just so frustrating. But, yeah. But back on Illumination Entertainment. Yeah, as I said, I just don't know why they're... Um, I know why they're successful. It sh- I just don't know how to categorize them. The stuff they're making doesn't make sense as... They're making kids' movies. That's but that, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't even break it down properly either. Because yeah. it's better than early DreamWorks, but not as good. It's that, like, it falls in the in-between between Kung Fu Panda and Shrek 4. And Cars 2. Well, Cars 2 is still, and I mean, that's Disney, but yeah. But I mean, I'm talking like Pixar. Like, the worst Pixar is probably the Cars thing. It's Cars 2, yeah. But that's, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, that's, I'm just saying that that's, like, on DreamWorks, I'm not even wanting to put them in the same league as Pixar. There's no reason to bring Pixar into this fight. Um, but I'm just saying, like, as far as, like, we're comparing, like, and that's what's interesting is, like, Pixar has kind of fallen off where Disney animation has kind of risen because John Lasseter has moved from one company to another, even though I, I love Inside Out. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I know you didn't as much. Right. But, like, Cars 3 is about to come out? I don't give, I don't give a fuck. Um, the I trailer for it makes it look in- interesting, just, but I then it falls apart. I just don't care. Like, yeah. I, I only seen, like, half of the first Cars movie. But, like, with DreamWorks, it's like, I like the How to Train Your Dragon movies. Right. Um, you know? Kung Fu Panda and the How to Train Your Dragon movies is where the company turned itself around. Like, before that, it was just pop culture references. Yeah. And I like Megan Mind. Mm-hmm. I like Megan Mind a lot, so. And, yeah, th- but as a... Kind of surprised I don't own Megan Mind. I just realized that. I was like, why don't I own Megan Mind? I actually thought that was really good. Yeah, so that's one of those that... Despicable Me and um, Megamind came out versus each other, and the Minions won. Those little yellow bastards. Banana. <laughs> so, uh, Nathan, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me at uh, <sighs> on Twitter at, <laughs> at Nate Wad. Uh, you can find me uh, on the Facebook page sometimes of dubious consumers. That's pretty much it. Like, I I really have disconnected from the internet and most social media forms. Just probably bad for my future brand, but you know, whatevs. Right, right. Sometimes you gotta write, bro. Right. Um, you know about this. Yes, I do. I literally just use bro and write in the same sentence. Brah. <laughs> Whatever, bro, sis. Brody. Uh, well, you can find Skylar at Eat Dogs. Eat Dogs on Instagram. Yeah, and that's if Lots he... Lots of baby pictures <laughs> right now, if he lets you in. If he lets you in, which he probably won't. Because but but it's pictures. possible, and then and records. He, um, I think it's Punk News something that he's done reviews for. I have no idea. It, I'm glad we're paying attention. Well, I've read a couple of them. That's why I remember it. So, <laughs> uh, so Justin, I, 
Do, do you really even need to say it at this point? Uh, honestly, I'm just going to go quick. Just for the noobs? I'll go quick and easy. It's uh, justindheard.net. Um, the big thing I've been working on, and I actually just redid the front page of justindheard.net to highlight this, but it will be uh, Dubious Consumption is the YouTube channel. More um, videos forthcoming. More th- more videos. Right now it's kind of one a month kind of clip. Um, working on... Uh, Banshee chapter was going to be my next one, but I found I would much rather discuss the differences um, between um, Stephen King's It, the movie, and the book, and some of the things that I have not seen other people talking about when it comes to uh, that work of fiction. Yeah, especially considering you've got comes out in late late November. I think it's August. Maybe it is. Yes. Um, I know there's a new trailer, but I was like, I'm not watching it. I watched the other one. It was good. It's a first look. So it's actually like a little bit of a trailer and then like a scene from it so you can see the Losers Club dynamic. Yeah, I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm already going to. I already bought in. I bought in just that fucking uh, the the slideshow. The slideshow. Just the slideshow. I was like, I know it's not the same in the book, but it's like, I'm in. I'm fully in. Yeah, I think they even call Henry Bowers. I think it's Travis Bowers or something like that. But that, honestly, I think might have been his first name. I'll have to double check. But that's what I'm working on right now. Um, Should be out pretty soon. But JustinDHerd.net and Dubious Consumption on YouTube. Which uh, hopefully we'll have more videos as we go along. So Right. So, uh, Nathan, uh, have a last thought for us. If you haven't read No Country for Old Men, do. (laughs) 